Thank you for joining us for Opportunity Makers. Notch was founded by two immigrants, and ahead of National Immigrants Day, we wanted to showcase and profile storytellers and leaders across different sectors and industries to prove that immigrants, by and large, are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers. Today, we have Emily Chang with us, who is currently the CEO of China at McCann World Group. Emily is a globetrotter. She has served in operational and marketing roles at P&G, Apple, and Starbucks, both in the United States as well as in China. She was the first CMO of China for Starbucks before moving over to becoming the SVP of marketing in Seattle, and now is the CEO in China for McCann World Group. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Hi, Emily. Um, would love to start because your experience is obviously unique. Uh, to what your experience with immigration is? How would you describe your interaction with um, with the immigration system? Though you might have not directly been affected through your family. Yeah, it's a great question. I was raised by immigrant parents, so my parents came over to the U.S. to study university. They didn't speak any English, and you know, I have to pause and say, I am so in awe of what my father did. You know, he studied it for a Ph.D. in chemical engineering without understanding English. And I remember when I was younger, he used to tell me he would be translating word for word his textbooks, and I remember kind of eye rolling and being like, "Yeah, okay." But then I studied chemical engineering. And I could barely do it in English, you know, being <laughs> a first language speaker. And I was really just um, kind of awed by what he had been through. But because I've been raised by young parents who had just come over from Asia, um, it was a different childhood for sure. And they did what all parents do, which is try to find the best neighborhood for us to grow up in. You know, probably bought a little bit above their means. And so, like, we had the privilege of growing up in a very nice neighborhood. But I also remember always having less than. I remember shopping at Kmart. If anyone knows what Kmart used to be, and I distinctly remember running toward the blue light special when it began to flash.、Um, our family only went to the movie theater once a year, right around the Christmas holiday time, and I remember that was just our big、um, family treat. And you know, you would stare longingly at the kids in line for buttered popcorn and slushies, and these were just parts of being, you know, children of immigrants. We didn't have very much, and they saved notoriously. And so, when we went to the movie theater once a year, we didn't even ask for movie snacks. We knew that that was not a possibility. In fact, we each got to peel this mandarin orange and smuggle it into the theater, and that's what we got to eat while we we're watching movies. Um, and you know, I have to stop and say they weren't even those like nice Ziploc bags where like blue and yellow make green. We had those crappy foldover bags, <laughs> so that the orange juice was leaking out of our pockets before we even sat down. But you know, two things came to mind in this one example that sort of exemplifies my childhood. I realized very early on I am not getting movie theater popcorn, right? So I can even I can do two things. I could either enjoy my orange or I can sit in misery as it leaks out of my pocket. And right, that's really no choice at all. So I learned to just enjoy it and not really look around to what others had. I think the other thing I'll say is I deeply appreciate buttered popcorn even today. It's just a treat, and I think when you grow up humbly, you just don't take anything for granted, you know. And I think it's really important to me to retain that mindset. So now I can probably get buttered popcorn anytime I want, but I still get this little thrill and a horror 
sort of when you spend $15 on like a bucket of popcorn. And I think this is really important to drill into my family and to my daughter as well, right? Because she's growing up in such a different environment. And she always eye rolls when I tell her this, but I say, you're going to grow up privileged, but I will not have you growing up entitled. I want her to be able to retain some of that humility that I grew up with. Because I think it's just, it makes us better people. It makes us a little hungrier, a little bit more appreciative. We look at everything that we have with a little bit more gratitude. Yeah, and you spoke to some of those um, challenges, like the mandarin oranges, um, <laughs> a little bit earlier. But what, what were some of the other unique challenges um, that, you, that you experienced growing up as a part of a multicultural family in the United States? I think you learn a lot of agility as a child because we grow up living in two worlds with one foot in each world, right? At home, we're speaking Mandarin, reading Chinese food. Every weekend we spend with this group of sort of connected families who are all Chinese immigrants. So our parents play mahjong um, well after midnight and the kids are just hanging out in the basement. That was my weekend. The kids would do everything together. We took our Chinese lessons together. We took um, our violin lessons together. We went swimming classes, all the things that you would expect um, good Asian kids to do. But on the weekdays, I was immersed in American living, right? I was hopping from school to band practice to tennis competitions. And I think because you grow up with one foot in, in two very different spaces, you learn to flex and also to help explain one to the other. So for instance, I grew up eating something my mom made, which was called Zhongyang for breakfast every morning. It's basically like a, a fermented rice soup. And she always told me, because she would sleep in and I would go to school early, crack an egg in the soup because you'll get protein, which was great. But what she failed to tell me was that this fermented rice soup was actually alcoholic. So I remember going to school, like I'm talking elementary school with like a red face and probably kind of buzzed. <laughs> I think my breath probably smelled like booze too, but I, I managed to explain our Chinese traditions because somebody did ask me one day in such a way that I didn't end up in um, foster care. <laughs> but on the other hand, I remember countless hours of trying to explain American social mores to my mom. And because they were raised in such a media limited environment, um, she had a very skewed view of what certain people groups were like. And I remember distinctly being in a public restroom and hearing her shout, don't touch the seat because black people have AIDS. And I remember like, so beyond horrified. And I'm like, this is not her, but she's being completely racist. <laughs> and I think she just, she didn't understand because those were the things that she had heard. And it, it was extremely embarrassing, but it, it also took a lot of, um, explanation to help her understand that what you have grown up with and what you were told is different than the world we're in. I, I also remember she used to just get into the left turn lane and just turn. And I'm like, mom, there's a red light. But she just thought there's this huge left turn arrow painted on the road. That means I go left. So I think having to explain America to my mom and then having to explain our Chinese customs to my Western friends, I think it developed a kind of empathetic thinking. You know, where you have to be the bridge and learn to, to bridge communication and, and mutual understanding. And frankly, um, I was just telling you that I just came to China. I'm in first night in our new home. I love jobs where I get the opportunity to bridge sort of different disciplines, different cultures, different mindsets, because that's how I grew up. And it turns out that it's one of the ways that I feel I can add value both at home and in the workplace. Yeah. And I mean, one of the questions, you know, I think that obviously comes to mind is how how those achievements, and you touched on this already, but how do your achievements um, and your experiences, how do you accredit that to the kind of agility 
um, the humbleness that you kind of have spoken to earlier? How did, how has that directly shaped your role as a storyteller? How has it made your role as a storyteller more realized or maybe more, more diverse, uh, covering yeah. diverse voices? Like how has being a part of a multicultural family really shaped who you are and how you approach um, representing some of the top brands um, across industries? Yeah, two things come to mind. The first one I'd say is I, I literally have become a storyteller, right? Because I took the last year off to write a book and it's called The Spare Room. And in the beginning, it was stories of these children that our family has cared for in our spare bedroom. In fact, I'm taking this call from one of our spare bedrooms right now in this new house. And it's been a really enriching part of our family to bring different people from different backgrounds into our home who frankly just need a safe place to stay. And we realize that's exactly what we can offer them. You know, um, I talk about it as your social legacy, that intersection of what you uniquely have to offer with what somebody uniquely needs. And when you find that, how do you lean into it and um, find an opportunity to leave a legacy for somebody, to do something meaningful? And when I started to write this book, it started off sort of as the stories that we've had the privilege of being exposed to during the course of the last two decades. But I was getting feedback from my publisher that said, we do need a more diverse range of stories. And so frankly, your question is super interesting because I had for the first time an opportunity to tell other people's stories. And these are people who've gone to the Ukraine, you know, physical therapists, working at a, at a mid-manager level who have chosen to go way out of their comfort zone to do something meaningful for kids who otherwise don't have a lot of hope. We've told stories from Africa about people who have wanted to understand um, a very different worldview and decided that maybe the history books weren't telling the whole story, they had to go themselves. And so the last year, this writing a book experience, first, I was interested to capture the stories from our family. Second, I was curious to see if I would be able to actually pull it together into a book. And then third, when I got that feedback, I had the opportunity to sort of create my own role as storyteller for the first time. And I started realizing as I interview people for those stories that were not my own, that there are so many amazing people with so many different backgrounds. It allows you to step back and withhold judgment probably to an even deeper degree than normal because you start developing so much interest and empathy for where they're coming from and what they're doing. And then you feel this deep responsibility of accurately and meaningfully telling their story. And that's sort of the first thing that came to mind. But then, you know, you were also asking just how has living with an immigrant family shaped the way I tell stories and the way that I operate. And, and my second initial answer that came to mind was humor. I think that combination of humility and where you grow up um, and the agility, you learn to see the humor in things and to embrace it. And I, that's, a, that's a value um, that's really important to me and our family. I remember, so we grew up in a really nice neighborhood. It was Pittsburgh, New York, the home of Wegmans for anybody who, who loves awesome grocery. And among a high school parking lot full of red Corvettes and forest green Jeeps, I drove this old beater Toyota minivan totally reeked of practical. It was for sure a hand-me-down, but there's one memory that really stands out. I was in a really bad car accident and this little speed car slammed into my driver's side so hard that this little red car rolled my huge minivan. Um, it hammered me so hard that I ended up with a concussion. And I remember while I was recovering, my father decided to surprise me and fix it himself. So you know how big a minivan panel is. He basically went out there in the middle of the night and hammered out what was the sort of indentation in the shape of the speedster race car. 
it ended up being a completely wrinkled mass of metal. And then he proceeded to go to the store and buy spray paint that said gold because he thought that my, my minivan looked like it was gold colored. And these were two completely different colors. And the spray paint he bought was a very, very shiny gold. <laughs> so now I'm driving this completely absurd thing. And I'm a teenage girl. Like, what are you going to do? I'm driving in a desperately ugly minivan. And now it has a strange gold wrinkled mess on the side. And so I remember making this decision, like sort of being mortified, getting ready to go to school. I decided to own it. I decided to tell the story and make it fun. And then whenever somebody made a joke about it, I laughed. I laughed wholeheartedly, not as a coping mechanism, but because I really found it funny. And I think when you can identify and embrace humor in your circumstance, it serves you so well in life. Because look, we have all got this ugly, battered, golden beige minivan in our lives. We all have it. We can try to hide it, disguise it, or deny it all we want. But at the end of the day, that's just going to cause stress and exhaustion. So what I've decided is to embrace it, tell the story, and have a good laugh. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that we don't talk a lot about, and I, I see it rising in conversation, particularly in America, um, as we discuss diversity and inclusion and as we promote that, but really the role that intersectionality plays both in, mm-hmm. both in immigration um, and in the immigrant community, but also as it relates to people in the workplace in general and, and broader diversity. You know, um, when people look at me first, I'm a white male, you know, mm-hmm. when you dig deeper, I'm a you know, queer individual, but my mm-hmm. privilege obviously is uniquely tied um, to that. I'm also from um, this rural South. So I'm from Mississippi, um, which can kind of sometimes feel like um, I'm coming from a different country, particularly when I'm in New York. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit about how intersectionality has, has affected um, or maybe not affected um, you know, your career journey, how being a woman has shaped um, your story as well and how that, how those two are, you are tied and how you approach, you know, speaking about your daughter as well, how you approach, um, kind of making sure that you're fusing those two together and, and celebrating, but also discussing the challenges that come with intersectionality. Mm -hmm. It's a great question because you get asked that question a lot, right? How do you feel being a Chinese person working in the States? How do you feel being an American person working in China? How do you feel being a woman amongst a room full of men? How do you feel? So I think at the end of the day, what I'd say about intersectionality is everybody sits at the intersectionality of five to 10 labels, right? Maybe more. Um, and it's fundamentally, what, which one do you embrace or none of them? And I think for me, I've chosen to take on some of the opportunities like today's conversation or, or female leadership empowerment. But there's not one that I would say I identify with. I would say we all sit at the intersectionality of being a very unique human being. And I guess over time, something that struck me is we can focus more on defining that and breaking out of that label, or we can focus more on not thinking about that and focusing more on who we are on the inside. Because one of the things I've observed is when I focus too much on being a woman or being a Chinese in America or being an American and Chinese, what I start to see is the world through that lens a little bit. Look, I'm not saying there isn't discrimination or behavior that's bad, but I'm saying I may also start seeing it where it isn't there or isn't intended in a malicious way. And for me, if I can focus more on what do I, what's the intersection of what I uniquely bring as value, that to me has been a more fruitful place to be in life. So 
For instance, I am at the intersection of feeling very Chinese in America and feeling very American in China. I could focus on how that's challenging and the limitations it brings, or I could focus on, dude, that actually gives me a really unique place to be in the workplace. That gives me an opportunity to help serve as that bridge we talked about earlier, right? I can think about um, being a woman in a room full of executive men. And we talked about this recently. I did an event with Adweek and Facebook. And, you know, the question was, what happens when the men in the room ask you to get coffee or hand you their coat? Sure, it'll happen. If I focus on the intersection of who I am and why they've chosen to do that, I can get negative or bitter. Instead, if I think about, gosh, they have made an assumption that's not true, but how am I going to leave this as good as I can? Because I'm going to be working with these people. I can make them lose face. I can embarrass them. I can yell at them. Or I can find a gracious way to kind of say, hey, I want coffee too. Let me see if somebody can help us and define who we are in common. There are things that we can do to minimize um, unintended comments where we can educate with grace and where we can focus more on the value we bring and the positivity and not that negativity and not the, God, everything is so hard. Again, I don't wanna diminish when we are treated um, disparagingly or with discrimination. Everybody does face that and certainly to vastly varying degrees. But it, you know, the reason um, I'm responding this way is also, I have a LinkedIn engagement that's really fresh on my mind. There's a young lady who reached out and I try to respond as much as I can in the form of sort of coaching and mentoring. And she asked a bunch of questions. And what I'll say is she was an Asian immigrant who had just moved to the US. And she's like, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? This is so hard, I'm facing this. And it wasn't that any of those things weren't legitimate and she should get um, great advice on how to tangibly address some of that. But first I felt like you're so mired in it that it's gonna be hard to give you counsel that helps you overcome if you're, if you're seeing everything through that really critical lens of everyone's against me and everything is so hard, you know, we kind of have to move out of that space of being stuck at that intersection first, releasing it, and then saying, okay, practically what's happening? And then what is the best course of action to address the way that I'm being treated or how I'm feeling? No, I love that. And I think that's, that's an amazingly specific and also purposeful way to look at it and drive forward change. To your point, I feel a lot of times when we bring it up, we're highlighting the commonalities, which I think is obviously an important step of discussing diversity and inclusion and just understanding that, oh, you have these similar challenges. It's not just me. But beyond that, it's how do we actually drive forward change? And to your point, there are, there are many ways to approach it by calling it out and and you know um, asking someone to change their behavior. But at the same time, there's also a way to move that forward in a way that also empowers you and empowers and empowers them hopefully to to become educated and I think that's such an important um, aspect of this and you know one of the reasons why we're doing this series is because Notch was founded by immigrants and um, we just we discovered that National Immigrants Day is on October 28th and you know a brief history about National Immigrants Day is that it was really popularized during the Reagan administration Um, during a time where immigration was somewhat celebrated and and obviously has decreased in awareness, not not unlikely because of the shift in uh, politicization of of immigration over the last two decades, primarily since 9-11. And so, you know, what are some ways in honor of National Immigrants Day and to really celebrate the immigrant community that is quite diverse and very intersectional 
um, mm-hmm. that brands um, can really focus on increasing visibility, can focus mm-hmm. on amplifying the voices of the immigrant community, and can focus on humanizing um, yeah. immigrants um, and multicultural families. Because, you know, as a queer person myself, yeah. one thing that you learn about the queer history and the increased visibility and acceptance of queer people is that as queer people became more visible, you know, and more human, um, we gained an acceptance. And I think, you know, the uh, the reason why we're naming this series Opportunity Makers is because there is this narrative that immigrants take opportunities from Americans. And so curious to hear how brands can take the responsibility of showcasing the the makers or the the immigrants that are adding value um, mm-hmm. instead of taking taking something away. Absolutely. Two thoughts come to mind. The first one is something that I just mentioned, which is how do you leave it better? I think our responsibility isn't just to reflect the accuracy or the authenticity of the current state. Our responsibility as business leaders is to make it better. So what what do we have to do? to actually improve the circumstance. I think that comes to the second thought, which is seek to understand. You know, I remember in the older days, we used to have a budget for minority marketing. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I think it was with a, with a good intent, right? Um, but it was basically, how do you show the right faces and how do you depict the right thing so that everyone feels sort of included? I think that, again, positive intent, how do we take it further? than the right visuals. You know, one of the things we talked about recently on LinkedIn as well is um, diversity is about numbers, sort of being asked to the, to the dance, right? Inclusion is then maybe about being asked to dance. And belonging is feeling like you can dance like nobody's watching. So how do you go from that diversity and the superficial view, which again is, is positively intentioned and, and important to getting to a place where people feel a sense of belonging? To me, that's leaving it better. And so how do I create advertising? How do I develop marketing ideas that help somebody feel like they can dance like no one's watching because that's how much they belong, that they are part of my tribe. So by seeking to understand, I think tangibly what that looks like to me is a deeper sense of sensitivity. And it it probably means we have to be a little bit vulnerable and put ourselves in circumstances, right? We say walk a day in someone else's shoes. I think that's quite a literal articulation. It means, you know, I remember we were doing um, research to try and bring a cold and flu medicine to India specifically. And so what we did was instead of sitting in focus group rooms, you know, dark mirrors where there's five to 10 people you're listening to and you drink beer and eat M&Ms, we decided to go live with the Indian community. And we spent a couple nights living with them, riding in, uh, I, I worked with a family whose dad drove one of the, like the equivalent of like a taxi cab. And you look at the life and if you have a cold and flu, you cannot not work because this is what's going to pay for dinner tonight, you know, and you have to keep going. And when you start developing the empathy, you start gleaning really important insights, insights into a person's life, um, insights into the things that really matter to them and how to tell stories in a way that not only resonates with him so that I can deliver my business end goal, but that pays tribute to who he is as an individual. Um, We did the same thing for Pantene in China years and years ago, probably my first time to China in the early 2000s. This is my third time back. And I remember we were looking at how we grow penetration of conditioners, right? Conditioner commensurate with shampoo. And you do some math, you're like, gosh, if we did, it would be worth this much money to us. That seems like a no brainer. How are we going to do that? 
So the first thing is let's understand people who aren't um, using conditioner. And let's go again, let's go live with them. I'm a big proponent of going and getting uncomfortable, but living with somebody and understanding their life. And if they're willing to let me share life with them for a day, what a privilege. And anything that feels uncomfortable or vulnerable really ought to be put to the side. And one of the things I remember is um, in a tier, tier three city or so in China, you have to go to the community well to wash your hair. There's no water heater. It's freezing. So you're doing this thing once to wash your hair, right? Are you really going to do it a second time <laughs> to condition? Suddenly conditioning feels like a real nice to have. So we had to reframe our business challenge. Is our challenge to drive more conditioner use? Once you have empathy for who you're speaking to and who you're trying to delight, not just sell stuff to to make money, it rearticulates your business challenge in front of you. So you're always looking for the win-win then. The win-win is how do I leave things better? And how do I deeply seek to understand so that I don't just create ideas, products, and services that resonate with a broader community, but that really pay tribute to who they are? That's an amazing way uh, to end. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation um, with humility, grace, um, some, of the, some of the ugly, so to speak, as well as some of the beauty in bringing diverse perspective and um, and excitement and I think some semblance of, of deeper meaning um, to your roles as uh, brand leaders um, across different industries. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today, especially considering you've just moved into your new home in China. Join us again next time for another episode of Opportunity Makers, where we showcase immigrants at top brands and across different industries to prove that they are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers.